All right, I am here with Jeff Brown. Jeff, I discovered uh, his work online, uh, one of the more beautifully eloquent uh, pieces, actually. And, and I have many issues with Instagram, but, uh, but actually this is one of the uses I felt was, uh, was worth the while um, and, and sort of dove deeply into your work and actually only discovered it uh, a week or two ago. But um, as with anything resonant, it's led me down a rabbit hole of discovering um, that you're one of the voices out there that, that really resonates. And I, I feel like when we're, when we're doing work, sometimes we're presented with uh, people that can help us along, along the way as we uh, navigate through stormy waters. So for me, your work was a bit of a lighthouse and uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I feel yeah. good about it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So one of the things I, there's a variety of places, you know, for those listening, um, you know, we're just going to sort of see where this goes, but um, there's a couple contexts that I'd love to start with. And, and I guess we'll go, we'll go straight into it, but you have a, you know, one of the things that I've been particularly interested in is, you know, I think I personally am very head oriented and I think our society strives to keep us a lot in uh, in a in in a head space, if you will, even the, top, the, the, you know, the, the name of this podcast is peak mind. Yeah. Uh, that said, I've become more and more intrigued by what it means to follow the intelligence, if you will, and the alignment of the heart, uh, the gut in the context of men's work, the balls, you know, the sort of alignment of a more embodied aspect of self and living. And one of the things that you, uh, you know, focus on is this notion of the soul and, and also, uh, you know, and I'm going a variety of places, but you talked a lot in, in, in my research around somatic work and, and actually some of, some of the ways in which when we focus too much on some of the spiritual traditions orientations as it relates to ego and the mind and meditation, we may be not, not that you're against it, but it may be missing the mark. Could, could you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because that's my own interpretation of, of yep. what I've heard you share. But could you give a little bit of an orientation around how you see sort of what it means to be embodied and, and your, your notion, and they may be separate, your notion of uh, the soul and, and what it means to sort of have a, uh, your soul's work as, as, as your true North Star? That's all you want to know, Michael. Just those. <laughs> I just thought we'd go. Two I go right start, I start, start starting soft, but I thought you know, hey, let's. let's oh, like, what did you have for lunch today? Just, you know. <laughs> wow. I mean, I mean, let me be more sort of subjective about it, like because I, I wrote my first book, Soul Shaping, about the, a lot of this, and so for me, I found something I now call sacred purpose, what we might call callings, gifts, offerings. You can call it whatever you want. Um, um, I found that inside of my body. I found that inside of my intuitive body. I found it inside of the opening of the heart. I found it in my hips. I found it in my feet. And I never found directionality as a man or as a person in my mind. My mind was a good translator of experience. It was like a functional uh, aspect. It was a, a functional way of being. But for me, ultimately, it never seemed to be able to tell me or anybody I knew the direction that I was here to walk in this lifetime, something I call soul scriptures or true path or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, you know, I would go into my mind. I was I, I named my parts as a teenager and one of my parts was Encyclopedia Brown. So I was, you know, a really sharp guy, like an investigative journalist, you know, um, and I survived by my, my wits. And that's how so many of us have to survive in this culture. Um, it's an overstimulating, overwhelming culture. And, you know, the more disoriented we are with respect to our intuitive body and our physical body and our feelings, the more easy we are to be manipulated by the marketplace. Consumerism preys on the uncentered. You could also say consumerism preys on the disembodied. Because um, if you're in your body, you know what you need to buy, you know what you don't need to buy. You, you know, you're moving from the right place inside of you. So for me, it became clear that my mind, which helped me to survive my crazy childhood and build a life in this crazy world, was not going to help me to understand my path. Um, you know, if I let my mind decide, it would be a survivalist decision. What's pragmatic? What's, what are your best abilities? Great, you're becoming a lawyer. You'll make a fortune. You'll become famous. So that's your path. 
But then I heard this voice inside of me right when I reached the end of my article in Year in Canada. I worked with a very famous criminal lawyer, Eddie Greenspan. We did a very big, famous murder trial here, and I directed it, wrote cross exams, jury address. I was totally in it. My soul was on fire with it, and I always knew I'd work with Eddie when I was a kid. And then I reached the end of it, and it was like, uh, you know, just go do this again. You know, I feel like I'd done it for many lifetimes. And I heard a part of me that I had named Little Missy. This, my warrior consciousness, my self-identified warrior would kind of insult this part of me. Like a, she was like a demure lightweight that needed doors open for her. She was the soft voice whispering in my inner ear saying, it's not for you this lifetime. You're here to walk a different path. So, you know, there was this very activated interface between this warrior part of me that how I self-identified and this other part of me that was seemed to be talking from the soul itself. Um, and trial law was part of my soul's journey, but completing trial law as an articling student was also part of my soul's journey. I wasn't somebody who did law because my mother or father told me to do it. No, I loved law. It was the hardest decision I've ever had to make, I think, to walk away from that. But I heard this part of me that said, you know what? It's just not why you're here, just to become the biggest bullshit artist in a courtroom. You got something else to do. Um, and so I sat for many years in this not knowing and learned how to find the next step of my directionality in my body. Um, so the more I did somatic psychotherapy with Al Lowen and bioenergetics or Stan Groff's brilliant holotropic breathwork, the more I discharged the blocks, discharged the holdings, the more space opened up inside. And then the next step on my truest path revealed itself. I didn't find it in my mind. I found it in my body at the end of very strong somatic release stages. Um, I had more clarity, more energy, more directionality, and I was now more mature or more able to handle reality because I'd got into the depths of this darkness. So I could not only see my path, but I could also see my path through. Um, so for me, all of it happened inside of the physical body in the emotional release chambers. And, and so that's my bias. You know, I carry that bias and, and then it would be fortified by, you know, I'd have a cousin who'd come to see me. He was a radiologist, made crazy money, and but he didn't know about his relationship. He wasn't sure if he wanted to be a radiologist. He wasn't sure if he wanted to live in Toronto. We'd have the same conversation over and over again. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I don't know. Should I stay with her? Should I stay in Toronto? Should I buy that? He couldn't figure out anything. He couldn't figure out anything because he wasn't in his body. Mm. He's living in his mind. He survived by his wits. He had a lot to overcome with his mind, and he did. Um, but he was a perfect example for me of what happens when you try to answer the question of who you really are from the mind alone. You can't answer that question. Yeah. The mind can help you to get there. The help mind can help you to process data and information. The mind can help you to actualize your soul's intention, but the mind is not going to tell you who you are. It's in the body. Mm. Because the more I went in the body, the more the answers reveal themselves. So I carry that bias. I think it's a bias I, I resonate with and, and relate to, um, especially as someone who I think actually has a survival mechanism, which I think is probably true for many of those listening, um, ha have used the mind to help navigate through yep. traumatic and societal sort of biases and orientations. And, uh, and you know, the, the sort of rewards of our society are often based on, on some of those achievements that can be uh, crafted and created through the mind. But, but I think the, what you're mentioning, right, that, that great existential dissatisfaction that, that gnaws at you when you've got the cheese and yet it's not, uh, you know, the proverbial cheese and yet it's not it, um, I feel like is such a, a pervasive, you know, narrative in our, in our, in our world today. And, and one of the things that I, I, I wonder is, I think of it often like signal and noise, you know, I think all of us can relate to music because music, I feel like is one of those things that just translates across cultures mm -hmm. and we know it, we know a good song, you know, a good song, just, it hits, it resonates. It's like, that is true, you know? Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think about like the soul or like that deeper wisdom in a way, like a good song, you know, and to me, it's like, that's the signal. The challenge is I feel like we're in such a noisy world. Like there's so many inputs, as you said, that actually benefit from that discombobulation, right? The whole notion of, of consumerism is based on you not feeling enough so that you buy more. But, but my question is then within that context of an, an increasingly noisy world, I know for me, like one of the things I do is I go into nature because I feel like it helps me shed and, and sort of center. 
I like this idea of, of embodied practice, but whether it be sort of philosophically or pragmatically, like you mentioned, Stanislav Grof and breath work, what are, what are some of the ways in which you found to be most effective to get back into signal and get back into that mm -hmm. notion of what is that true voice of the soul? Great. So let me first say, with relation to, in relation to what you said at first about this, that the way I see the world is that we are shifting from a survivalist uh, consciousness, which defines who we are by what puts food on the table, primarily, mm -hmm. defines success through those eyes. We basically live in our adaptations disguises. We don't deal with trauma. We don't deal with feelings. We're the grandmother who says, don't look back there. Let's just stay focused on getting you some food today. We stand on the shoulders of survivalism. Um, and now moving, beginning to pioneer the movement across the bridge to a more authentic, inclusive consciousness, where the answer to the question, who are you really, isn't what puts food on the table most effectively and successfully. The answer is what puts food on the table and that which actually honors my soul's journey in this lifetime. So that's where we're stepping towards. That's why it's so difficult, because we are really the first step pioneers in this journey. Um, and so for me, the things that have helped me to make that bridge crossing, um, somatic release work, absolutely. Um, good diet. You know, you need energy to shed the armor of survivalism as a way of being and move in another direction in a culture that's not supporting that yet. So that's for sure. A word I used in soul shaping called solitude, which is kind of what you described going into nature for you, where you can reconnect to your more subtle center, let's say. Um, the practicing the art of selective attachment, which is learning how to get rid of the light dimmers, the people that hold you back to a survivalist vibration, welcoming closer to you when you're ready, people who are supporting your pioneering bridge crossing towards a more authentic, soulful way of being. Healthy boundaries are part of that. Um, and for me, I think the thing that, so, you know, until you find this thing I call sacred purpose, which we can define very, very broadly, doesn't just include great callings, gifts, and the Oprah Winfrey life. And it includes all that emotional material that we're here to transform through. Wherever there's growth, there's purpose. Wherever there's purpose, there's growth. So for me, finding sacred purpose in the form of writing in particular, um, which I knew lived inside of me and I sat down to do it often and I wasn't ready yet. I hadn't learned or suffered or something enough to write like this. And finding that, that becomes a buffer against the madness of the world because, you know, you no longer want to get invested in or hooked into things that take you away from this beautifully delicious path that lives inside of you, longing to be humanifest at every moment. That can happen in a love relationship as sacred purpose. That can happen in your healing work. But something that you know is deeply connected to your soulful nature and is fundamental to what would actualize you in this incarnation, that becomes the protective shield that allows you to not get hooked into the world and that becomes this very, very sweet place. And then my experience is what starts to happen is presence and purpose start to become the same thing. So, you know, people would talk about being present in this dissociated spiritual bypass construct where they were like getting rid of the story, getting rid of the body, getting rid of the feelings, getting rid of the ego, trying to control the mind by witnessing the mind in this meditative drug addicted stupor. And I was like, I don't think so. I mean, I felt more present when I cleared emotional debris, felt grounded and alive and bright eyed and bushy tailed. That felt present. Eckhart Tolle just seemed like a dead man to me. Um, and so for me, presence became this thing. And then when the purpose reveals itself in that version of presence, um, they start to become indistinguishable. Presence becomes purpose. Purpose becomes presence. You don't even know the difference anymore because the purpose keeps portaling you back to presence and the presence keeps portaling you back to your purpose. And the trick is, you know, sticking it out until you get to that place where you're pretty enlivened and start, you know, for a writer, writing on your hands, writing on the walls, writing on your forehead, you know, you're there. Yeah, it's not everybody's path. Everyone has a different path, but you know, you need to practice those things, solitude, selective attachment. You know, you have to take care economically. You have to stay grounded in survivalism, take care of the bottom line so that you feel safe and secure enough to let go of the pragmatic world and explore that more subtle surrendered realm. Otherwise, you're going to be in your vigilant consciousness, basic needs, Maslowian vibration all the time. So it's a lot. You've got to do a lot to make the bridge crossing to a place where you're not just talking about purpose because they're all talking about purpose on the gram now, but where you're actually really living it. Um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to sort of unpack that a little bit because, you know, I think as I listen, 
you say you offer so much there um and that bridge crossing i love that idea of the bridge crossing Um, yeah because i but i think one of the things that you're bringing to bear which i love having been in many what i would call spiritually bypassing contexts yeah is you talk about kind of it it occurs to me almost like moving through the shit of it all and actually using (laughs) shit if you will the gentleman i know named martin prechtel i don't know if you know his work but I did a workshop with him and he talked about pain being the horse that beauty rides and, nice. and using, uh, you know, the shit in life, honestly, as spiritual. That's the real spiritual compost. That's where you can actually grow some of these gardens. And I think, you know, that sort of grandmother ask, you know, like, don't look at it. Just, you know, go forward uh, that bypass, which is ostensibly bypassing. It's the um, same thing. Yeah. It's why Trump and Tole are the same thing. It's the <laughs> same you know, mastery is defined as something that's dissociating from the wholeness of the human experience, perfecting a singular thread of consciousness, whether it's money making or meditative stupor, and not dealing with and inhabiting every other aspect of your life as sacred experience. So as sacred experience, because I had I had an insight yesterday, and and it may very well have been around um, some of these ideas that have been ruminating in my head lately, but I've been as and you and I'd love to talk about this. We don't have to. I don't want to jump there quite yet. But you, you know, you talk about love relationship and profound love relationship. And as someone who's looking to call that forward, I'm no. I know enough about myself that I get to keep doing the deep work within to see what's holding me back from it. And 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 I've been looking at, um, you know, some deep traumas, ancestral traumas, you know, ch- childhood traumas, etc. And what's interesting is there was a distinction that hit in my mind that seems somewhat analogous, although I, I'd love your clarification, to your notion of almost sacred purpose, which was the, this, the, the, the topic came to me as sacred wound, right? And I've never paired the two in my mind, and it's not necessarily an epiphany for anyone else. But for me, somehow, I would, because I, it, it's freaking painful, I think anyone can relate to this, to really look at the gnarly shit that's happened to you in life, like the darkest stuff, you know, that like shadow, like really you know like for me getting jumped as a, as a small kid by a gang like it was just, like that stuff is hard to look at yeah but then i started to think to myself well what if part of my sacred purpose is my sacred wound like what if actually the wound is in some way the door to the purpose right because i was having a conversation i thought was going to be a 10 minute conversation with a guy that wound up being a two and a half hour conversation and at the end we started talking about for example men's work and I was very fortunate, and I know it's extraordinarily rare to have a very, very deep and profound relation, loving relationship with my father. And a lot of that was because during my dark night of the soul, I had moved across the country to be with a woman, my longest relationship, who wound up cheating on me without going into great detail. And my response was to numb in every way I could, you know, beer, weed, whatever you meant, you, you name it. And he knew enough to say, all right, I'm going to support you. And what we're going to do is he took me basically through a, a process of individuation, which we don't really have as men these days. Um, mm-hmm. And I did a, 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 something called the Mankind Project, they, they have yep. a warrior training. He was one of the first people to go through. Um, so I did that training and he was the only father there. There was 150 men staffing and they actually pay for the opportunity to staff. He was the only father there that showed up and uh, showed up to staff my weekend. Without going into any narrative, it was for me a ritual rebirth and the integration work, which I did over the course of every week for the next four years, without making this about me, was was a was a truly like a sea change in my life. And that the wound that led me there wound up being a bridge to definitely an aspect of my purpose. And so my I guess my question is. For those listening, because I, I'm not, I can make it about all about me, because I definitely have personal questions I'd love to ask you. But it's okay. I'm I'm yeah. sure for those There's nothing narcissistic about talking about yourself. You're... Yeah, I suppose that's well. I'll I'll keep it about myself then, because actually it's maybe fine. that's a more vulnerable take. But you know, one of the things that came up in this conversation was, you know, for example, um, I've often been told, "Hey, you know what? I, I think you'd be an um, you'd be." part of your work, I feel like should be around this notion of individuation as it relates to men. And what's interesting is I just always feel more comfortable around women, perhaps because of being jumped by that gang of, of, of men as, as a boy. Um, but what occurred to me in that context of sacred wound is actually maybe sometimes those things that scare us the most are in some ways a compass 
um, in that direction. Now, Great. again, this is an intellectual, this is an intellectual idea. I haven't come, I ha it hasn't landed in my body as my sacred purpose. But for those, for example, who don't feel clear about their sacred purpose, and I'm happy to make this personal, I feel like I'm on the path, but I don't feel like I'm fully embodied, I would say personally yet. How does one take the compass, right? Like the, the, the sense of, I interviewed a guy by the name of Boyd Vardy, who was a lion tracker, and he talked about people get lost in trying to and know exactly, okay, this is, this is my life's path. He said, instead, it's about finding your next right track, that, that first track. You yeah, know? great. And, and, and for great. me, I have a sense that this is a track. For those listening who may have a sense, okay, I think this is the right direction, but I have, it's very foggy. I have no idea where I'm going. How do you recommend um, crossing that bridge or approaching that process towards that, uh, that, that sacred purpose? Okay, so let me do the first part. Um, I'm holding the first part of what you said in the second part. So for me, sacred purpose, um, when I, let me just say, when I started to call it sacred purpose, mm. people were calling it divine purpose. So I had a problem with that because I saw no reason why we had to keep dissociating from our humanness when we talk about something grand within us. Mm. So I'm not into higher consciousness. I'm not into when I write something great, saying it's channeled, I'm not into any of that. I'm really into really honoring humanness. Your story is your glory. Um, and so for me, sacred purpose includes primarily uh, unresolved emotional material, the issues and patterns that you're dealing with, material you're holding from your individual experience and your ancestral and generational experience. Um, it includes some calling, gift, or offering, say the calling or gift to write or for the lion tracker to track lines or whatever that is. Uh, and it also includes uh, what happens and you're needing to have happen in the relational field as part of your growth and expansion. All of this, wherever there's growth, there's purpose. So any of this is sacred purpose, so long as you get that sense within yourself that this stuff is some juicy realm of material that you're here to get to plummet to jump into as a depth charge and to work through to the next stage of evolution your evolution your individual evolution in soul shaping i said repressed emotions are unactualized spiritual lessons so at this stage of human development where we're at the beginning of this bridge crossing from survivalism which essentially means being completely unconscious about our woundedness towards a more authentic inclusive consciousness which necessarily must include a healing journey and an awareness of how our material is living itself out in the way that we, and our sociological material and how we live and move through our lives. Um, in order to make this bridge crossing at this stage of human development, where most people should be focusing right now is on healing. Mm. And because it is the portal, it is the grist for the soul mill. It is the karmic field where the soul's lessons are harvested. It's just the place that you grow and become. So for me, you know, emotional maturity and spiritual maturity are the same thing because I define spirituality as reality. That So the most spiritual person is not the person, again, who's perfected a singular thread of consciousness and every other part of their life is a shit show. The most spiritual person is the one who's holding the greatest number of threads of reality, including practical life, relational field, me and Michael Trainer right now, uh, connections to the environment, awareness of a more expansive unity consciousness field if we even think that exists um not bashing duality as though this pseudo bullshit non-duality is the real story um, most of them are just masters of self-avoidance masquerading as enlightened masters it's just a big marketed patriarchal spiritual self-avoidance game mostly so for me the most spiritual person the most real person the most purpose purposeful person is the one who's in a more in real consciousness not enlightened but in real who's here here for all of this. Um, and we can't get to all of this because there's all of these pockets of armoring and repression and unacknowledged and unreleased and untransformed material we had to hold together to survive in a survivalist world. So if somebody wants to get to purpose, the first thing I tell them to do is go to therapy and get to work. Um, and start clearing debris and start understanding the debris and start bringing yourself together in a whole different way than your patterning and your conditioning allowed you to. Um, and to acknowledge yourself as a trauma survivor, what it means to be a human is to be a trauma survivor. 
there's small T traumas, big T traumas. There's all kinds of traumas. Not to say everybody's got the same shitload they're carrying up the mountain. They're not. But at the same time, I think we're at a stage in human development where we've got to start unpacking and clearing all of the craziness that's happened so we can start to try to create a more humane interface within the self and with, in relation to each other. Um, to that point. Just get you- to work. Get, I, I love it. So in essence, don't worry if you, if, if you haven't figured out if you're going to be the great songwriter yet. You know, there are so many people that keep jumping steps. Sorry to interrupt you, but they keep jumping to the calling first. They're, they're going to become Oprah. They're going to be. And it's like, no, no, no. Just it's you've got to get to know yourself well enough to know you got to see yourself as building the foundation so that you're reaching the stage where you can hold the greatest number of threads of your purpose at one time. And in order to do that, you've got to get yourself solid. And in order to get yourself solid, you got to do work in the emotional realms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things I would love to focus on as we, cause you're, you're, you're basically, as I'm in my listening, talking about doing the deep work, which so many people, I think, especially in the spiritual community, avoid, right? Like actually going into well, that's why that's why they're in the spiritual community, so they can avoid it while claiming that they're actually awakened. Right. Yeah. So so going into the the grist, right, the 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 courage that it takes to confront the darkness, if you will, um, and and actually in that darkness, um, one of the things that you talk about and, and, and I'm particularly interested in how you, because I think another one of the aspects of, at least, especially in the West, I think the spiritual oriented path that many people talk about it is a very individual oriented concern, which, you know, at the end of the day, we are all kind of like, you know, on our, on our, on our individual journey. However, having lived in a place like Sri Lanka for two years, where there's no word for privacy, there was no word for possession. Mm. And knowing that in many cultures, since time immemorial, we have had a, for lack of a better term, tribal orientation in regards to our consciousness and how we navigated reality. You talk about this concept, and I, I'm actually interested in down the track getting into this context in terms of uh, romance and, 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 ro- and romantically how we relate. But I have a lot to say about that, but yes. I, yeah, but in the con- in this, to, as sort of the bridge to get there, as it relates to the individual moving through shit, and obviously oftentimes our greatest mirror is, is in relationship in a romantic context, but, but as we look, think about the context of allies or those who can help us navigate through the darkness, how do you see this notion of wherein work is for us to do it ourselves? And how do we look and know if someone's, like you mentioned, context, and I and forgive me, I don't remember exactly how you delineate it, but it occurred to me very much as what I refer to as batteries and black holes, which is that notion of like, who in your life, and it's a very different distinction from this notion of giver and taker, because a giver can actually be a black hole, they can be using giving to kind of uh, cord you energetically in a way that drains you. And so for me, I like the idea of battery and black hole, because it's about your feeling, it's actually about how you feel when you're around someone. And so in my path, one of the things I'm interested in, and that, and by the way, a battery isn't just someone who fluffs you up and, and doesn't give you real talk, but it is someone you you feel better after having been with them. Enlivened, them. enlivened. Enlivened. How do you look at the, in the context, if you will, at relationship as it relates to sacred purpose? Great. So, I mean, to maybe to simplify it for me, and I think you, you in particular, based on what we were discussing earlier, may want to read an uncommon bond because I get into the whole relational field around this. And, and I do believe it's the next stage for human development. I think at this stage of human development, it's all most of us can do to deal with ourselves and figure out who we are, what our issues are. To imagine some perfected experience with another human being over a long period of time feels like just completely ridiculous to me um, because I just don't think that until we reach the stage where we're cleared out enough and we're in touch enough with our emotional process, it's very, very difficult to reach that wonderfully fluid, present-centered place with another person without being overwhelmed by triggers sometimes. Um, so the distinction I made in Uncommon Bond, and it applies not just to love relationship, is between, we just use the term soulmate. So just anybody who comes into your life, even a pop-up on the path for a short period of time, who's here to somehow confirm, support, or accelerate your soul's journey. Okay. And wound mates. So wound mates are connections where there may be triggering in both of those examples, but the wound mates, you're more attached at the waist, W-A-S-T-E. So Mm -hmm. you're 
in the stuff, you're constantly in the stuff. And there's just, for whatever reason, because of just a combination of personalities and triggers and histories and traumas, there's just not really a forward step available in the dynamic itself. And in you, what happens is you start to get more and more refined and you, you'll make mistakes along the way. And this is part of the practice and the art of selective attachment, learning to distinguish between those connections of every kind that will support the acceleration of your journey and those that will st st stall you, regress you, or destroy you. Um, and I think we have to be incredibly, you know, um, we have to be very realistic about how that works. So you, you're looking for your soul pod, but like your purpose keeps changing and evolving and expanding. So does the soul pod. And, mm -hmm. and then you're looking for light dimmers and border crossers and all the space invaders and the people that, and you know, I, I found on the path because we are habitual by nature as humans, as I made progress, I found myself wanting to go back to some of those dynamics and it was necessary three steps forward, two steps back. That is how it works. Um, but you got to be careful there you know you're in a dynamic and you're going to you reach the stage where you know your evolution demands that you shed a particular relational way of being you have to reach a stage where you can make those subtle distinctions and find a way to move on out and it's particularly hard with family because of all the survivalist rules we have around staying close to family even if you can't stand each other um but yeah so i think those are the distinctions that that i mean i just in terms of the ultimate message of an uncommon bond i believe that you know the ultimate portal, um, the, the reaching a stage where we are truly co-creational with this galaxy, whatever even that means, is a relational experience that isn't. So the patriarchal spiritual traditions are all about the lone wolf meditation warrior. Meditation is the royal roads, the kingdom of God in isolation in the cave for 30 years. To me, that's just like the basic bypass bullshit story we've been told and you know my experience has been that's safe and that's easy and you can garner a lot of wisdom there that you need to move forward on the path but at some point along the way you have to come back into the relational field and because I, I think that's the place where the real real collective transformation is going to happen we're just not there yet to be able to do it very effectively we see the shit show of human relationships everywhere we look it doesn't take a genius just pick up a newspaper so, you know, I think we have to come back to doing the individual work and not only in and of itself. There were stages when I had to be alone with my material, you know, um, and then there were stages when I had to get into the relational field in order to accelerate my journey. And the more work you do, the more able you are to make those subtle distinctions on the path. It evokes for me, it's interesting because the distinction you're drawing is, is to me evocative of, of a distinction that I, I found particularly resonant. It is not very often talked about in, in, in the Western interpretation, for example, of Buddhism, but living in, in Sri Lanka, where there, you had a pre-Buddhistic animistic context that evolved, with, you know, it's a hodgepodge. It doesn't fit clearly into any sort of uh, boundary. But there was a distinction that I found interesting between the forest-dwelling monastic and the village-dwelling monastic. And the forest-dwelling monastic is the, the way that we always hear about, at least in the West, a monk, right? That cave-dwelling, individual, yeah. forsake, such. The village-dwelling monastic, which I think goes to the true, true notion of, you know, this bodhisattva ideal, is actually about going into the shit of the village, actually pursuing the path, not by forsaking reality and going into a cave, but instead by going into the muck of the village and all the crap, the society, the city, whatever it is, and forsaking your own individual pursuits to support the work of all others. And to me, like, at least that's my interpretation that I feel like is, is uh, a true North that I always resonated with. Yeah. Well, if you, um, if you, if the idea that you can't, if you ha can't find your awakening in the village, then you really haven't found shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I have, a, I have a quote about that. In the books. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but I would love to I would love to get into the context of and this is in part personally uh, something that I'm very curious about, but also something I, I just know you have such rich context on as it relates to romantic relationships um, and this idea of profound love relationships, because I think so many of us, as we talk about society, have been oriented around this notion of, you know, which is in itself, I think, oftentimes flawed because it's around this notion of almost like completing ourselves with another, right? Like it's, it's like you're not fully complete or realized unless 
you have found your other person. And oftentimes societally, we stay with that person. And then many people, even if they can't stand each other, um, because of, you know, what it would mean to, to sort of leave. But I think re regardless, there is a necessity of doing the work, I think, within ourselves to call in, I don't want to say the right, that's too loaded of a word, but to call in a, you know, it's my belief that as we do work on ourselves, we're putting out in that same signal noise, we're putting out a stronger signal where we can find commensurate and, and complementary signal out in the world, but yet we're always evolving. So we're, we always need to continue to do the work. And I know you have many rich thoughts around this, but how do you look at, given the conventional conversation around love, how do you look at loving relationships? Well, the, the conventional notion is, is really rooted in a survivalist marketed patriarchal structure. It's, they, they really want you to, and maybe we needed this for the purposes of social order. They really, you know, just like we needed to put on ties for the purpose of civilizing ourselves and shaving and all the rest of it. So we'd be taken more seriously in the marketplace. So I think that so much of that is really about holding society together in the way that we've imagined society. Um, it works better when people stay together in houses, build equity. I mean, all, you know, raise children, all those. Things. If we're crossing the bridge to this very brilliant new terrain, you know, brilliantly textured and colored and all the rest of it to a more authentic, inclusive way of being, then, you know, it's a whole different question as to what love looks like. And my suspicion is it's probably, I mean, at this stage of human development, and, and I'm not uh, somebody who's comfortable with a polyamorous way of life. I need to say that, but I can understand why people, if they're true growers, as opposed to relational avoiders really need to go through various experiences because they need to keep informing their own unresolved unhealed process through the relational field in order to reach a place where they can actually solidly land somewhere with somebody. And I think what some, something solid looks like is it, it's very different from the valent, the Valentine's Day notion of the perfected partnership. It's, that's not human. You know, that's like a robotic construct. That's like Eckhart Tolle's version of enlightenment when there's no energy coming off of him. It's like, for me, the, the ultimate direction we're going probably, but not, no, I can't know this for sure, is where there's three things that are being honored at one time. One is the, um, call it the triad of co-creation and grounded spirituality. You know, one is your individual, if it's you and me, Michael, your individual development, you're con continuing to go deeper and farther on the highway that is you, the roadway, the pathway that is you finding new exits to get off of as you add more pieces to your idiosyncratic polyphrenic soul self. Um, and my honoring that and you're doing and honoring that in me. And then this other thing that we co-create and become together through the merging of our idiosyncrasies. Um, and that's very different from the story I was sold in the beginning about what it was supposed to look like. We were supposed to perfectly mirror or complement each other. We were supposed to be duty bound and trapped in some gender conditioned notion of how we function in relation to each other. Now that the gender fluidity movement is taking root so firmly and strongly, everything's changing. You know, it's, it's so that the ideas people will come to love, not from some terrified to move in the direction of authenticity place, survivalistic construct, but we'll begin to understand love as this kind of unactivated, co-creative, perpetually transformative way of relating to another human being. It doesn't mean you don't stay with the same human being, but it's a much more dynamic. Um, yeah, you can see in a survivalistic world, you, you can't do that because survivalism, you have to be vigilant. And we need to make the world a safer place so we can make this step relationally because vigilance and vulnerability make strange bedfellows. You can't be vigilant and vulnerable at the same time. Every man, every human really at this stage knows that. So we want to reach the stage where it's safe enough that we can be vulnerable and safer. And then we can start to explore all the realm of possibilities that most of us have no idea that even the tip of an iceberg of what's possible in the relational field. But if we survive as a species, I think that is what we have to look forward to. I think it's really beautiful and rich. There's a, I think there's a, there's a notion societally uh, that we almost judge the success of a relationship based, based on its length, you know, yeah. um, you know, which, which is always interesting to me as opposed to uh, its depth. You know, I've had some, I, I hope to one day have a long and deep uh, relationship uh, that I, unlike any I've ever known to this, to, to date, to date, one that is, you know, uh, the profound love relationship. 
But you talk about, and, and I've heard you talk about before, and I'd love if you, if you, if you would be willing to share about and make it personal, a profound and deep loving relationship, but where once it got out of it, sounded to me like the excitement level, it was something where that person's trigger or, you know, and I don't want to put words in, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of learning, but it didn't wind up eventuating into a long, you know, based on, based on length, it wasn't, that wasn't the success of it, but that you, as I understood, got a, a tremendous amount of, of, of insight from it. Is there any, can you share a little bit about, you know, sort of your, your personal experience? Well, the experience I wrote about an uncommon bond was a June 1998 until February 1999. Um, she had moved in November of 98 to Toronto to hang out and left in February of 99. So that's not a very long relationship, but it was a thousand million years long. Mm. Um, and it was unimaginable as i just uh, i wrote the book sort of fictionally but based on the experience it was unimaginable that this was not we were uncommonly bonded it was you know uh, unimaginable that the intention of that for me wasn't to stay together for the rest of our lives why would i would say all the time why would god bring this to us if for us to then react to each other and, and part ways it makes mm. sense i see it very differently now and that took many, many years for me to reach that stage and, you know, to understand that it came, as she had said, into my life and into her life as the great crack open that I needed to reach the stage where I could do the work I'm doing in the world and where I could understand reality and, and live and inhabit reality. You know, I was living in a survivalist construct. I was understanding love as a survivalist construct. Just the very fact that I would say, why would God bring this to us if it wasn't meant for us to be together? Well, in fact, whoever brought it to us, whether it was us summoning it, whether it was something called coincidence, whether it was the good Lord, him or herself, whatever it was, it really clear to me now that it was impossible as a sustainable thing. Um, partly because of her absolute unwillingness to do any deep work. Um, there was way too much stuff in the field to ignore it. You just couldn't ignore it. Um, but also because, you know, I had experience. There were moments, I remember this moment in Virginia walking up the of the road with her the dirt road and i remember feeling completely open like open like i could never been open before you know the art the male armored male warrior had dropped his you know dropped his shield onto the ground and i was experiencing reality completely through the opening of the heart and i remember feeling like this is impossible to sustain in this world at this stage of development we'd have to live on a mountaintop never have to engage the world because it's, it's, we just weren't culturally there yet. To be able to hold, to hold that in that way, to that extent, safely um, in the world we live in. So I think we have a long way to go. Um, so I think if you're one of those people who encounters a connection that has a profound nature to it and is, you know, may not know at the time because it's so damn painful um, and ecstatic and all the rest of that, but you know, allow for the possibility so long as you don't close down the end of it, what seems to be the end of it, because that was the choice I had to make. Either I'm going to armor back up because now I had evidence. Yeah, love sucks. Just armor back up, trauma survivor. You know, you know that way better. But for some reason, it was so remarkable that my some part of me said there has to be something good has to come out of this. So that's when I developed the concept of loving it forward, that I love the experience forward and found another way to bring that love into the world, the opening of the heart. And that's really my creative life for the most part was because of that experience. I had to have that experience in order to reach the stage where I'm doing the work I'm doing in the world. So that's an example of that. And it didn't mean that we had to hang out in the same room, tormenting, torturing, and enjoying each other for the rest of it. Yeah, my most actually profound loving relationship to date was a, was only six months long, but it was, as you said, eternities. And I am I, I was totally in love with her, but I recognized that we were not. It was not the life we would choose. Uh, I it was not it was not my the life that I was. She was a bit older. She was thirty five when I was twenty seven, and she had an eight year old son. And I just knew enough to know that this young man deserved a father. And I, I deeply yearn to be a father at some stage. I do feel like that's part of my destiny. 
but I wasn't ready in that phase of life to, to step into that role. And so I felt, even though it's not personally what I wanted to do, that that was the honorable thing to do was to honor that context so that she could call that forward. Took me damn near a year plus to get over it. But one of the things I recognized was that it did that knowing that experience and knowing that I could get through it, I think was, um, was in many ways, uh, emboldened, if you will, and, and strengthened my, my notion of, I, I can make it through almost anything. Cause in the depths after that, I mean, I was, I was deep down in the shit. Um, that said, I think, cause you drew a distinction that I think is really important and it's a question I still have. And I imagine others may have, which is how does one after a traumatic experience, whether self-inflicted or induced by another stay open, stay vulnerable, um, after experiencing the hurtness, the profound degree of hurtness that one feels, um, whether self-induced or other induced in heartbreak, you know, like how do, how do we stay in that and or channel it such that we can step into, which it sounds like you did that context of, of, of part of our sole purpose, using that as compost for, for new generative possibility, even if that's not another relationship, maybe it's yeah. work. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to grant yourself permission to feel what you feel and do what you need to do, first mm -hmm. of all. So, you know, if you need to eat a lot of ice cream, just eat a lot of ice cream. If you need to close your heart to connection for a period of time, trust that you need to close your heart. Just be careful that it doesn't become a fixed way of being, that response. Um, I think that's the key. Just be so allow for it. Allow, I mean, allow yourself to lick your wounds. I mean, it depends on your trauma history. If you have a tremendous amount of trauma in your individual or your generational history, this could feel a thousand times more overwhelming than it might be for somebody else. So you have to contain that. You have to, you have to drop down into that and allow yourself to close off in whatever ways you have to. But just remember to, you know, that the ultimately, I mean, you have to have in you your uh, desire to fight for your rights to the light. And you're not going to get to the light in your life if you're going to be living your life with a closed heart. You're not. You're, you may be experiencing elements of reality and be intact, but really primarily you're living a more fragmented or fractured life. You, if you want to come back to wholeness, wholeness has to include the willingness or the ability to open the heart and not to keep it open in every situation at every moment. That's idiotic. Um, you know, I talk about conscious armoring and soul shaping because I think what happens is you still learn how armor, but you do it consciously. And then you take your armor off at the end of the day and you open your heart back where you feel safe again. So, you know, you, but, so I, I think ultimately the hope is that whatever that experience was, you will be able to love something forward from it, unless it was, you know, a horrible narcissistic partner. You know, I mean, it's like those things, it's not for me to tell somebody they need to find the light. I mean, they just, all they can do to survive that. But if it wasn't that, if it was something like what you just described, a situation where you're lovingly or for whatever reason, deciding to let her go get what you weren't ready to give, um, then, you know, I do what you have to do, but remember to try to come back to a more transformed and open place. And, and one where you've learned something from it, if you can learn something from it. So maybe for you, it's, don't step into the field of relatedness till I feel more ready, for example. It's great learning from it so that it doesn't all go to waste. Yes. Yeah. I, I like that distinction you draw of conscious armoring. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think many sure. people walk through the world either numbing, unconsciously numbing, or, kind of armoring. Or, or, yeah. or, or, which is a form of armoring. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. This, this notion of conscious armoring isn't one I've heard, a distinction I've heard drawn. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, I, I started to do it with myself. I would notice I'd go to like sell windows door to door and I had a window company and I'd have to put on my sales face. And But in doing that, I would leave this more subtle, sensitively connected part of me that I was trying to develop after years like warrioring, you know. So I would go into the Johnny on the job and the subdivisions in the morning before knocking on the doors and I'd have this conversation with myself. I'd say soul self. Okay, this is highly schmaltzy. You got to get ready for this. I say, <laughs> I go soul self. I got to go put on my sales face for the next two days. But I promise you, after all is said and done, I'll come back. And then I would, you know, Saturday, Sunday, by Monday, mid afternoon, I'd start to feel connected to myself, not as persona and all that stuff. So you start thinking about yourself like that. Like, you know, what's my real heart centered self feel like? Mm. What is the face that I have to the adaptations defenses and disguises that I show the world so then you know you go to meet you hang out with your crazy family where there are some nasty people and you put on your armor you should 
and then it becomes more tolerable if you have to go you have to go so you go and then you come home you get back in the car you put on your schmaltzy music whatever reopens you and you come back to your heart and this becomes a way of being everywhere in the world so we're not going from swinging from armor and survivalism to heart-centered authenticity we're holding survivalism we stand on the shoulders you know we're living in a they built the roads for us they they cut the cavern that tunnels through the mountains where the trains go they did have we you know we are all standing on the shoulders of the survivors the, the the democrats who hate those hard ass stoic republicans don't understand they're standing on their shoulders you know and i mean it's not that simple people really that's why i like mayor pete because he seemed to understand everybody played a part in this mm. whole thing it's very interesting we could talk to everybody in a way that showed them how they were relevant in all of the whole tapestry of the experience so you you reach the stage where you're doing that with yourself and so you have tools. Now you have tools. Oh, I got to go deal with the fucked up world. So I'm going to go armor myself up a little so it doesn't feel so tra traumatizing. And then I'm going to come home and regain a connection to myself because I got the weekend off and, and I'm going to regenerate and restore myself right in the heart and center of myself. And that's how you live your life. Yeah, it actually, for me, as you were talking, it beckoned for me this notion, almost a, the tr traditional, although it can multicultural context of, of you know, like a, a tribal context of a warrior where like if, if men were going off to a hunt, you know, they would traditionally, yeah, you know, put right. on the, the face paint and they stepped into a different archetype exactly. within themselves. And then when they came home and they took off, they, they you know, disrobed, et cetera, and they entered into the, the home place, it was a different identity. It was disarmoring. It was it was taking off that identity which they needed to personify to embody yeah. out in the world in on a hunt uh, with with their, the other men, and I think unfortunately again and this goes to this context of of lacking now at this particular point in our in our culture, we don't really have those clear delineations right we don't have those processes of individuation or those cultural signals such that we know when we're entering into that so we all it's almost incumbent upon us ourselves as individuals to know and to create those practices which sound like you did yourself to to draw those distinctions so now okay i'm going to make a deal with myself uh whether it be schmaltzy music or what have you where i know i'm whatever entering back into this whatever it is i'm going to do that because that's going to enable me to to for lack of a better term code shift between these different realities i inhabit um, yeah, I, and it's particularly I, hard in Western culture because Western culture really was not really about that. Western culture really has been primarily about building in the materialistic realms. So the more armor, the better. Mm. Um, the you know, there's a reason why people kept voting for Trump even after he re revealed over and over again what an inane fool he was. Mm. And the reason I believe that happened is because he kept surviving just when you thought it would be the end. He had done one more thing that would end it. He survived. Survivalists love survivors. He looks like the greatest survivor of all. No matter what he does, he keeps remaining the president of the United States. That's what survivalists love. And that's how they identify. So for us to move to a more heart-centered way of being in the heart of a culture that defines success in that particular way, this is a, sorry, one sec. This is a, this is a, a, a a journey in the direction of something completely unique to us. And when I was doing this in my twenties, I, I mean, I don't think I felt like a freak exactly, but I certainly didn't know anybody who was talking or thinking like this. I mean, it was, it was completely out of step with the cultural vibration. So you got to get used to being completely out of step with the cultural vibration. Fortunately, now Gabor Mate is doing trauma movies. So you know, this, we're starting to normalize the language of this and understand this more deeply. And what we really need to do though, is don't swing so far away from survivalist world you know you think of all the yogis law of attraction who sold their houses and decided they found their one path and ended up bankrupt sleeping in their cars on a beach in maui claiming to be enlightened that doesn't work you need to hold real spirituality is humanist and humanist means you have to hold every aspect of the human experience in your field of consciousness at one time beautiful i love i love that Can all of it it's all real baby 
Yeah, talk what's a little bit real because that's the, that's your real? notion of grounded. That's the grounded spirituality. You're yeah, what's right for me? Absolutely, grounding is spirituality for me. It's, yeah. it's being here for all of it, and that doesn't mean in some mundane, pragmatic state of mind where you're not able to hold a more expansive consciousness. You're holding that expansive consciousness, whatever that means. But you're not doing it as a self-avoidant, transcendent thing where you're floating away from your humanness like a bird with one wing, and you come crashing down to earth. You're doing it from your feet up. You're doing it through the deep work you're doing within the tapestry of the self to get it to the stage where it's integrated, where it's inclusive, where it's speaking, parts are speaking to each other, where you really know who it is that this is. And then your, your access to this thing called unity consciousness or an expansive consciousness is very different from the patriarchal self-avoidant one where they jumped up and out of here and they never came back down to alchemize it. And that's why their whole life is split between these two realms. Mm. Talk about the alchemizing, uh, because I think that's the piece also, is I feel like the turning the crap, that composting process, like we talked about earlier, um, I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily know how to turn their shit into compost, if you will, or especially- well, how, would, how would they know? Where would they go? Exactly. Who's going to show them? Their exactly. mother and father, they don't know how to do it. Right. No. We're learning, we're developing models, we're de developing awarenesses on how to do this now. You know, It started very safely with talk therapy, helpful but safe. Now we're dropping down into the body, very helpful but not as safe, because now we're coming close to the heart of the traumatic material. It's not a mind construct, it's held in the body itself. You know, Playing this blaming the mind game, spiritual guys like mind, 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 meditating to tame the monkey mind, there's no monkey mind, it's a monkey heart. When you do the clearing of the emotional debris, when you open your heart and clear the stuff, your mind calms down. Mm. Trying to do it from this way down doesn't work. It's not possible because the source spring is the emotional and physical body itself. That's where all your material is. It's not in your mind. And then it's manifest in neurotic thinking, anxious thinking, habitual way of functioning, all those things. Really, to me, all of it has to do with dropping down into here, mm. holding all of reality as a felt experience. And then the mind changes. You mentioned Gabor Mate. I don't, I don't know to what degree, but are there other, and you mentioned Stanislav Grof, as one embarks on this journey of tapping into the body and tapping into the emotionality and finding that, ideally, that, that, that integration, that calmness that comes yeah. only in and through that process. Are yeah. there any other individuals whose work you admire, books, resources? Yeah, great. Absolutely. I love, I love that question. Yeah. I mean, I would say, first of all, don't spend too much time with anybody who calls themselves a spiritual teacher. They're not. <laughs> if we're defining, they may be good meditative teachers, meditation teachers. They can be good at things. But if you're calling yourself a spiritual teacher, because I define spirituality as reality, they're telling you they're a teacher of reality. And that's just a load of nonsense. If there are spiritual teachers in the culture, my view is they're embodied practitioners of all kinds, dance practitioners, music practitioners, and somatic psychotherapists. So Alexander Lowen's bioenergetics work, that for me is far more aligned with spiritual teaching than what we normally call. Like Eckhart Tolle is a waste of time if you're really trying to get inside your body because he left his body a long time ago. Byron Katie, forget about her. Ajashanti can't feel any energy coming off of. If there's no energy coming off the person, in my view, they're not a real spiritual teacher. They're just teaching patriarchal bullshit. We've been reading this in these Indian books forever and ever. It's the same book over and over again. It's not serving us. You know, people pondering their navels while the world burns, forget about it. You've got to get in your body. So Bioenergetics, core energetics, John Paracos's work is excellent. Some people are liking, I don't know enough about it, but radical aliveness is starting to move. Somatic experiencing, Peter Levine's work is wonderful work. Really understanding the nature of how trauma is held in the body and how to transform beyond that place of holding. I did a session recently of David Burcelli's TRE. It's not a psychotherapy, but I found it very helpful at reintegrating me, realigning me, realigning my perspective. Philip Shepard's work with Radical Wholeness, New Self, New World. Brilliant, utterly brilliant work. Um, I really recommend checking him out. Uh, Gabor Mate's understanding of trauma um, is profound. Um, I don't agree with his shtick with ayahuasca. I think that he should be a lot more careful with how he articulates that because it's not for everybody for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, Stan Groff's holotropic breathwork work is wonderful. I mean, obviously all of these with the right practitioners, grounded, well-boundaried, 
practitioners that know how to hold the space for trauma. Um, yoga is a little dangerous because stuff comes up and they don't know what to do with it. Calling yourself trauma-informed just means you've been informed there's something called trauma. That's not good enough. We need yoga teachings now to develop that integrate the healing of the emotional body with the excavation of the work the material that comes up when you're doing asanas i think that's one of the next stages in the culture um, but those are some people whose work i really really like um, there's a lot of cheesy life coachy people out there and i mean we you know the instabranders all the i mean i just avoid all that stuff just go to the people who are really really getting to the heart of the matter um, and protect yourself the rest of the time you know, and regrounded spirituality. I, I cover so much of this. In this. I deconstruct that and try to build up the beginnings of a new model. And, you know, and, uh, and those are the people that I feel aligned with. Andrew Harvey's work is brilliant. Uh, Chris Sade's work is brilliant. Um, but really, you know, um, Julie Yaw is doing some wonderful work around embodiment also. Um, yeah. But, but really nobody who's calling themselves traditionally a spiritual teacher. I, I know I overstate that, but I really think it's important to understand that. They're talking about a very different idea of awakening than the one that I'm talking about. I, uh, I, I the, the context of, I, I think, just anyone calling themselves. So I have, yeah. uh, I do have a particular reverence myself for um, having, I, I have been fortunate to sit with some very profound indigenous elders. But what I found is, Right. These are not people that call themselves anything, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and that, that's what I say, you know, they, like, it's you not know, a marketing they, construct, right? Yeah. It's like, if you call them my, one of my biggest triggers, someone calls himself shaman. It's like, okay, first of all, if you're a true shaman, you wouldn't call yourself anything. A second of all, it's not a, it's not a glory. It's something who sacrificed themselves to be of service to their community. It's not, you dress yeah. with certain clothes and you look for your, you know, um, and you know, the greatest teachers I've learned in that regard are the most humble and never call themselves anything, but just embody, you know, it's like, they're, they're not just, they're not they're, the other, that's the other thing. And this, I think goes to your notion of teaching. They're not prescribing anything. They're so in, in my view, attuned just in their listening to how you're showing up, your body language, the words beyond the words, the, you know, that, that they share stories almost like an elder would buy a campfire where you can find, at least in my experience, at least I could find, I'll make it personal, I could find what I was looking for in the story. Not as a prescription, you should do this, but yeah. actually I sure. tend to meet sure. that, that truth in that story. And sure. to me, it's like, that's such a different distinction than someone who purports to be something and has a solution that you don't have within yourself um, yeah. that they're selling you. I mean, I, that to me is like a, a very different distinction. You have to be very careful I mean, I mean, careful in a life and death sense. I've written a lot about the new cage movement. Um, you know, when you get led astray by the soul liberty movement, you have to understand that, that they're there as a marketing construct for egoic and financial purposes. They may not have any calling at all to anything other than trying to figure out a way to, I can, I know many of them and I can tell you stories about almost all of them. And most of them are plagiarists. Uh, most of them are imitators. Most of them are uh, controlled by some marketer who knows precisely what to do with the name and the game and the whole rest of it. It's dangerous. Um, so I think not to say you can't learn something anywhere. I mean, you can throw somebody in a room and they can figure out that they're not that thing. And that's an important learning on their path. I get that. You can go see a practitioner who's not registered and who just works in a little cave in the hills and they can be exactly what you need at that moment. I'm always allowed for that possibility. But if you're going to look for some place to go to have a sustainable transformative process, go with the real pioneers of embodiment um, and avoid pretty much everyone else. Embodiment. I love it. So, well, that's just about being here, like presence as a whole being experience. You know, mm. if they're talking about presence as something like many of them were in the beginning that sort of gets away from the toxic body beast. I mean, well, that's not going to get you present. I mean, that's going to get you to some lovely pseudo awakened bypassing place where you can walk around in that kind of meditation stupor and think you found it. But if you're looking for, it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for, a truly actualized experience of the soul's journey, you have to show up for all of this and you have to find that in the body itself. Um, that to me is almost common sense now. And whatever my way of understanding reality will keep changing and shifting, I don't think that part will ever shift. Yeah. It just makes sense to me. 
I'm, I'm with you. I'm, uh, I'm on the journey back into my, but my body as well, actually, because I feel like as a survival strategy, I, I learned early how to leave my body. Um, yeah. and now it's, 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 yeah, I've just witnessed ways in which I've not been kind to my body. And now yeah. it's, it's about coming okay. back, coming back home, if you will. Here we are. <laughs> exactly. Well, I want to, I want to be uh, respectful of your time, but, but I'm so Thank grateful, you, uh, for this conversation, uh, Jeff. And I, where can people find you? Cause you, you've been pretty prolific in your, in your writing. And I know that that is an integral aspect of, at least as I understand it, your soul's purpose. So where can people find you to tap into some of, of the great things you've written? Uh, jeffbrown.co. All the books are listed there. The links off site to various places. Um, Beautiful. Soul Shaping Institute, Facebook. I'm, I've been very active on it. I'm just I'm kind of new to Instagram. I'm much more active on my Facebook page, my, my business page. Um, but Instagram a lot lately. I really like it there. It's it's a lot softer and softer and lighter than Facebook is. I just enjoy it. It's just, you know, I mean, it's sort of silly, a lot of it. But at the same time, it's sort of, it just makes it kind of sweet. <laughs> I like that. And what's interesting, I mean, I find... I mean, that's actually how I found you. You know, I mean, there's there, there's some aspects I don't care for, but I have I have uh, been tuned into some very interesting places. I'll just end with a story that has absolutely nothing to do with anything we talked about so far. But I actually randomly bought a ticket that I saw pop up on Facebook to Argentina uh, some years ago, uh, and and bought it. And I actually totally forgot that I bought it because I thought it was fake. And I wound up on Facebook just saying, "What do you do in Argentina?" And uh, I got about 50 replies, and one of them led me to Torres del Pine in Patagonia. And the reason I share that is to say, if any of you listening or you, Jeff, have the opportunity, talk about embodied living, uh, to go to uh, Torres del Pine in Patagonia. I got to ride horses with gauchos at sunset. And to ride horses, you know, 10,000 feet up and get off this horse and the gauchos left me alone with 50 horses and to sit there and just I, having grown up in the middle of the city i grew up in chicago it was the i was deafened by the silence there was not a sound i could hear anywhere and to be with those horses and to be in that a uh, level of purity in nature that i very rarely have had the honor to experience that was that was something special uh, that, was, that was really I'll, I'll look for that yeah i recommend it but I, I thank you so much man i really appreciate your insights and i'd love to keep in touch we'll connect again for sure all right brother be well thank, thanks michael take care thank you Bye. all right 